who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hello everyone, this is Mark Jeffrey. I just want to take a moment and thank you all for your patience. Uh, I have not put an episode up for the last few weeks. Uh, it's been rather busy on my end with uh, many things, uh, but I'm now back on track and I'm hoping to uh, speed up uh, the pace at which I'm finishing the two travelers. So I just want to thank you for your patience and apologize for lack of a chapter uh, these past two weeks or so. And secondly, I'd like to thank Abigail Breslin, who uh, was kind enough to mention the Max Quick series as one of her favorite books in a nationally syndicated profile piece. So uh, a mention like that uh, from you in a national article like that, uh, that helps an awful lot. So thank you so much. I really appreciated it. And uh, Abigail, if you're listening, I just so happen to have a screenplay version of The Pocket and the Pendant, and uh, as of this moment, the role of Casey Cole is uncast. And lastly, uh, the week of August 3rd, uh, both Max Quick 1, The Pocket and the Pendant, and Max Quick 2, The Two Travelers, uh, will be available as downloadable books in the iPod App Store. Uh, There are very few books right now in the iPod App Store, uh, of which uh, I'm proud to say that the Max Quick books will now be available for purchase. Uh, in the App Store. If you have an iPhone and you like reading books, um, you can now get both these books uh, for your iPhone. Uh, I think they're going to retail for $5.99 each, uh, which is pretty good. It's far less than the the actual physical books are. Um, So I hope you'll uh, you'll go to the App Store, and it'll be online sometime this week. I hope you'll obviously go and, and get yourself a copy. I hope you're all enjoying The Two Travelers. Let's get on with this week's episode. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Thirteen, Max and Michelle in the park. Monsieur Le Quick, Michelle teased, whispering to Max after breakfast. Attends, Max, today is the day. The day, Max whispered back, baffled. What day? Yes, Michelle replied. The park, do you remember when you promised? Suddenly it all came flooding back. 
Michelle wanted to go to the park with him. He'd forgotten all about it. <laughs> this was just too good to be true. Madame is sending me out on an errand. You will come with me. We'll be gone before she knows. Meet me at the bottom of the stairs in half an hour. Max nodded briskly and shot upstairs to change. Michelle came down the stairs into the parlor, wearing a smart, proper white dress. It was the style of the time, cinching at the neck and wrists, accented with lace and black ribbons. Her considerable nest of blonde curls was pinned up underneath a hat, and she deftly carried a parasol in one gloved hand. She looked spectacular. Max watched as she came down, trying not to stare. Romani stood in the next room, facing away from them, preparing a tray of little cups that seemed to sing when she poured tea into them. Whole round notes like bubbles of happiness burst from each cup. When she finished, the entire tray was a giggling chorus of joy. Michelle stood at Max's shoulder, smiling. Europa and her tea, she whispered. Our arts are good for many things other than just fighting Nubirians, you know. Max smiled back. Merde, Michelle said suddenly, fidgeting dejectedly in her dress. I hate these things. Max looked a question at her. This outfit. Madame insists I dress like a proper lady when I leave the house, but I hate it. Well, Max mumbled, she probably just wants you to fit in, you know, not get noticed. Besides, you look great in it. Michelle sniffed and grabbed Max by the elbow. Come on, she said conspiratorially. We'd better go before she notices you are coming with me. She never lets me do anything fun, you know. Together, they left the house and got into an open-air carriage that waited for them. As they approached Central Park for the second time in Max's life, they could see a great number of hot-air balloons in the skies above the trees. They hung there motionless, fantastic huge bulbous balls with a narrow throat tied to wickerwork gondolas. Soundless gouts of flame shot up into the throats at regular intervals. They looked like a hundred Christmas tree ornaments floating against the slate-blue sky, punctuated by wisps of pastel pink clouds in the distance. It was March, and unseasonably warm for New York this time of year. Warm zephyrs tingled in the air, signaling the first rustling of spring. Michelle clapped her hands with delight. Oh, I had hoped the balloons might be out today. Better balloons than sky chambers, Max whispered in her ear. Michelle laughed. Oh, much better. Max looked at her suddenly, studying her. She caught him and gave him a quizzical look back and said, What is it? I don't know, Max replied. You just seem so different outside the house. You seem more relaxed, I don't know, happier. Michelle nodded slowly, looking a little guilty. It is true, I confess. It's hard. They are my family now, Romani, Sambava, Gustav, and Gaspar. I do love them. Romani saved me when I was very young. She is like a mother now. But it is oppressive sometimes for someone like me. I'm French. I like to be free. But we are working, working, working. Michelle's face changed into a scowl. All of the time working. Always being careful. Not really living, you know? Max nodded. Yeah, I can see that. But even Feliero? I'd hate to feel related to that guy. Michelle laughed. You do not know him like we do. Perhaps in time you will. She stopped and then said pointedly, And what of you? I mean, in your time, that which is yet to come. What is your life there? Max shrugged. It's, I don't know, normal. It used to be bad, but 
all that changed after the pocket. Ian and I, we live together now. I have a house, and he stays with me. Uh, We go to school. We're both at Starland High together. We see movies, play games, and we do some not normal things also, I guess. We research Niberian stuff. Ian's actually trying to build his own sky chamber, but nobody knows about that side of us. Nobody else would understand. Michelle nodded knowingly. Yes, that side of us nobody would understand. And we can't tell anyone, can we? She gave Max a piercing gaze. Nobody other than people like us. Oh, she got it, Max thought with a shiver. She nailed it. That loneliness that came with the understanding. Yeah, Max said. That moment when you realize you're living in an altogether different world than the one you thought you were living in. I think about that sometimes, Michelle continued. What prospects are there for a girl like me? Who would marry me if they really knew about me? Max stared at her and almost said aloud, Well, I might. She turned quickly to him and leaned close with a piercing stare and smile. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You have courted girls and not known how they would react if they knew about you, haven't you? Max was suddenly nervous. Michelle was prying right into his heart. Well, uh, that's sort of true. I mean, there was this one girl. Casey, Michelle said with a knowing smile. Oh, I saw how you were talking about her when you told your tale. You and she were together, weren't you? But something happened and now you're not. Max was speechless for a moment and then said, Hey, that's no fair. You can't go using your abilities on me. Michelle looked back with a shocked expression. I was doing no such thing. Then how? I am a woman, Michelle laughed back at him. We all know these things without those abilities. Max laughed out loud. Michelle opened her parasol and smiled, twirling it over her head with self-satisfaction. The park was a wonder of people in grass and balloons lazily drifting over the rolling greensward. Michelle and Max got out of the carriage and started walking. With a start, Max realized where they were, the Great Lawn. The last time he had been here, it had been menaced with sky chambers and jadith and centurions. It was so different now that Max almost failed to recognize it. Instead, there were handlebar mustachioed men on bizarre bicycles and unicycles performing stunts. Couples strolled dreamily, arm in arm. Several men and one woman painted nature in lazy, bucolic bliss, intent on their easels. Their single most pressing thought today was which colors to mix next on their paintboards. Two identical twins with identical outfits and identical lollipops smugly reveled in their identicalness. An old man chased two dogs around with a bright red ball. A strong man in a black tank top stood on his hands proudly while the crowd around him clapped with delight. Max stared in amazement at the sights. The park in this time was alive and clean, and entirely free of litter. He didn't see any homeless people here, although he had seen poor beggars in the street. But most of all, it was free of Nuburians, which was the only context in which Max had ever known the park. As his gaze wandered across the velvet lawn, he noticed with a sudden shock Cleopatra's needle, the Egyptian obelisk they had hidden next to while spying on Jadith and Philemon, weaving their evil plots together. So, Max thought, it's here in this time as well. Michelle nudged him. What is it? Max head nodded towards the needle. That. It's nothing. During the time of the pocket, that monument thing was here also. Michelle nodded, understanding. But the rest of this place, it's amazing, Max beamed. 
It's nothing like how it is in my time. It's better, isn't it? Michelle said. It's wonderful, she squeezed his arm. Oh, thank you for taking me out today, she said with a suddenly intense look in her eyes. Max was taken aback. Was she really so unhappy in the house? Well, of course. Uh, no problem. Thanks for coming. I, I mean, what I mean is, I'm, I'm glad you could make it. And thanks, Max stammered, feeling like an idiot now. She just smiled and squeezed his arm again. Look, she shouted. A balloon had come down and landed nearby. People inside were getting off. And the pilot had just hung a sign that said, Balloon Rides on the side. Can we go up in it? Oh, please, Max. Max nodded. Of course. He reached into his pocket and was startled when he pulled out a thoroughly modern dollar bill. His future money was no good here, and he suddenly realized he didn't have any 1912 money with him. Michelle laughed when she saw. Of course, she said and pulled a coin from a small change purse in her dress. Here, she said. Use this. Max stared at it. Is it enough? More than enough, Michelle replied, laughing and tugging his arm. We'll even have change for candy later. Max looked at the coin again. It looked like a nickel or something. You're kidding me. This would even buy half a shoelace where I come from. Michelle thoroughly enjoyed the hour-long balloon ride, but it spooked Max. Due to the complete lack of control the operator seemed to have over the rickety device, it drifted around in the wind and seemed at times to be passing entirely too close to other balloons. At other times, puffy dark thunderheads drifted nearby, threatening to lance the airship at any moment. But Michelle only squealed with delight. Max kept picturing the balloon drifting helplessly on a wind current smack into the Flatiron building, impaling itself on the point of the wedge. Well, there was that in the fact that the pilot kept leering at Michelle, who seemed oblivious to his stares. Keep your eyes on the skies, buddy, Max growled inwardly. Afterwards, they walked to the other side of the park. As Michelle had promised, there was more than enough money left over for candy. There's an amazing confectionery right up ahead, Michelle said. I've passed it many times on errands for Europa, but I've never gone inside. I can't wait. Max gave her a strange look. Boy, people in 1912 certainly get overexcited about food, he thought. But then Michelle got an odd look in her eye, a wistful look. She glanced nervously at Max, the well-articulated features of her face betraying an inner debate. Suddenly she pulled Max behind a tree and kissed him. Max's heart hammered with delight and surprise at once. Their kiss was passionate. She pushed her body and mouth into his with an unexplained urgency. Max thought vaguely that he couldn't believe it was all happening, the one thing he'd been thinking about all day, and it had been Michelle who had initiated it. She pulled away gently, flushed. She looked up at him with a smile, biting her lower lip. Lord, that was just how I thought it would be, she whispered dreamily. Max only nodded. Max, she said tentatively, do you... would you... Her eyes darted at him nervously. What? Max asked her. Would you ever want to run away with me? She blurted out, and then looked scared she'd revealed too much. Max blinked, startled. Well, I, I haven't really thought about it. I mean, I don't know. She looked down with a pained expression. No, no, look, I like you, Max spoke quickly. I definitely like you. I just, I mean, run away, like what, here? In 1912? And while the machine, I mean, I just can't leave the machine alone, if that's what you're asking. Is that what you're asking? Michelle looked up at him with a smile. No, of course not. We must fight the machine, Alors, that is plain. Well, then what? 
She shook her head and smiled at him again. No, never mind. I, I am being a silly girl. Max smiled back. Yes, a silly French girl. Bonjour, au bon pain. She giggled at that. What does bread have to do with it? <laughs> oh, nothing. Did I say bread? I don't even know. She nodded. You did, Master Quick. And you've made me hungry. Je femme. Let us go to the confectionery. Sunpike's sweets was thoroughly mobbed when Max and Michelle arrived. The candy store was quite unlike anything Max had ever seen before. The various confections were theatrical in scope, madcap, zany, oversized, and multicolored. Max read the various hand-painted signs. There were lollies, licorice, chocolate bars, peppermint drops, toffee, Swiss milk tablets, marzipan, pastries, ice cream, marshmallows, something called halva and divinity, which appeared to be a mix of egg, nougat, and nuts. Michelle smiled at his amazement. And this is nothing, Max, she giggled, and pulled him by his hand over to a collection of pale pink cubes. Do you know what this is? Max shook his head. He'd never seen anything like this before. Locum, Michelle squealed. A long time ago, a Turkish sultan ordered his confectioners to produce a unique dessert. Many failed, but finally, one named Haji Bekar succeeded. He invented locum, as the candy was called then. The sultan proclaimed his fame far and wide, and Bekir became a very rich man. Soon, the fashionable ladies of Europe were sending locum as gifts, and men would court women with it. Here, she blushed as she looked at Max. The audacity of the candy display was truly dazzling. Max thought numbly that candy seemed to have gotten worse with time, not better. The candy in his day was overprocessed, chemical heavy, and did not use real ingredients. But this candy, it was pure, unruined. Max suddenly understood why it was such a big deal in this age. Just as Max was admiring a particular ornate bit of toffee, he was stunned to see the very same old crone that he and Ian had encountered on their first night in 1912. She walked into the shop, her arrival announced by the jangling door chimes. Ha ha ha, Mrs. Madworth, cried the shopkeep, dancing over to her the moment she appeared. Madworth shot him a look of disgust and then leaned her umbrella against the massive glass case of confections. Mr. Sunpike, Madworth grunted, removing her outer coat. A good day to you, she said. And to you, Mrs. Madworth, Sunpike sang nervously. Such a good day, such a fine, beautiful day. Oh, what can I offer you? Some scrumptious dilly sticks? Or sugar chews? Or... Your head on a stick, perhaps, Madworth growled, eyeing the children nearby. You'd make a fine lollipop, and you will too if you don't close your teeth at once. Sunpike's bright demeanor darkened visibly. Well then, what can I do for you? He asked meekly. Nagatheth Lamin, Madworth said almost absentmindedly, looking at the wealth of chocolate before her with annoyance, like it personally affronted her. Sunpike became glassy-eyed and quiet immediately, like a receptacle waiting to be filled. Max nearly gasped aloud at the sight. What the hell? He elbowed Michelle, but she was seeing it already as well. Madworth leaned closer and pretended to be looking over the chocolate display. She specifically avoided looking directly at Sunpike, but she spoke quickly and precisely. Message begins. The final piece of the machine has arrived at last. We have nearly enough children. 
Expect to be fully operational within four weeks. End message. Now Madworth looked up to Sunpike. Nagatheth Lamin, she said again. Sunpike animated immediately like he'd been switched back on. He's a cryptonesiac, Max thought, and he doesn't know it. Sunpike was a human courier used to pass secure messages amongst the Nuberians, just like the one Gustav had told him about. Ah, uh, where, where were we? Sunpike stammered, confused. Would you like something for the nursery, Mrs. Madworth? I could have some chocolate sent over. I would love to give the orphans some joy. Madworth responded by swinging her umbrella so hard it almost cracked the candy case open. Temperance, Mr. Sunpike! Temperance! Her lip quivered violently, and the gurgly sound of blood and phlegm entered her voice. The children must not be spoilt! Oh, no, 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 no! They have work to do, and candy would only ruin them, make them soft! Sunpike jumped back, and seemed to be trying to cram himself into a crack in the wall behind him. Children were quietly leaving the store in such numbers that Sunpike's sweets was almost nearly empty already. Max and Michelle ducked down below a counter, feeling suddenly exposed. I, I, I am sorry, Mrs. Madworth, Sunpike whispered. I just, I, th- I thought you know that the children, <laughs> they might enjoy, but, uh, but, but no, it is not for me to decide. You know what is best for them, of course. I, I, I hope you do not take offense. Madworth glared at him one last time. Temperance, Mr. Sunpike! It would do you some good as well. All this, this candy, is an indulgence of the highest order. The seven sins, Sunpike. Gluttony! It is hell you serve here, hell glazed with powdered sugar. Madworth returned her coat and tightened the black wimple around her head, squishing her ample ruddy cheeks. She certainly doesn't look as if she practices the temperance she's always on about, Max thought. With a last glare, Madworth turned and left the shop. Sunpike sagged with visible relief. That's the same woman we saw when we first got here, Max said to Michelle. The night Faliero chased us. We've got to follow her. We can't, Michelle protested. You promised Madame. You know what Madame and Dr. Gustav have said. We're not to give chase to Nuberians. In fact, we're supposed to do our best to disappear when we see any. Yeah, well, they're not here. And besides, this Madworth doesn't even know us. She doesn't know we're looking for her. We might not ever get this chance again. She's probably on her way back to the nest right now. We can find out where it is. We have just learned now it is a nursery. That is far more than we have ever discovered before. We should go back, tell the R's. Yeah, well, I'm following her. I could use your help, your talent. But it's up to you if you want to come along. Michelle fumed, but she knew he was going to give chase no matter what she said. Ah, I am not happy about this. Great, Max cut her off. He grabbed her hand and together they bolted out of the shop. Luckily, Madworth was still well within view, waddling down the street. Her black raiment stood out starkly, even in a crowd where most wore dark colors. She had just opened her umbrella and hoisted it above her head. This pointy black dome bobbed over her now, shielding her from the sun. She's heading north, Max whispered, proud of his growing understanding of Manhattan's geography. Michelle nodded curtly. He was right. Madworth was hurrying along up 7th Avenue like a scurrying black ladybug. Behind them, Central Park dwindled in the distance. But within moments, 
Madworth had stopped and was peering down a dark alley at a small desperate figure huddled at the other end. There you are! Madworth hissed and immediately swept towards it like a predator. I knew I smelt your sweet fresh blood nearby. Max and Michelle quickly slipped in behind her, straining to see whom exactly Madworth was after. But before he could get a good look, a boy rudely bumped his way between the two of them, jostling and shoving as he squeezed by. Excuse me, he said gruffly and tore down an alley towards Madworth. Max's heart froze. He knew that voice. After all, it was intimately familiar, in the way that only one voice could be. As he watched the boy run away, Max found himself staring at Max. It was his younger self, the younger Max Quick, the one who lived here now in 1912. Max blinked. That's me, he thought numbly to himself. It was not the first time. This had happened before, briefly in the Pyramid of the Arches, at the end of the pocket. Nevertheless, he had dreaded the existential shock of this moment ever since first arriving in 1912. That was me, Max said numbly to Michelle. My younger self who just bumped us, that was me. The younger Max had not even looked up at the older Max and Michelle. His attention was squarely on Madworth. And even if he had, the older Max suspected his younger self had not guessed who he really was. But now, the figure Madworth was chasing let out a little yelp of fear. It was a little girl. Max's intuition jumped. Petunia! Petunia Cole, Casey's grandmother. She was a little girl in 1912, and Madworth was trying to kidnap her, as she had done with so many other children. But presently, there was yet another surprise. A new figure quietly stepped from the shadows and slipped in behind the younger Max. This was a very, very large black man. He was dressed in a gray suit with a black bowler cap over a bald-shaven head, but his clothing was curiously out of place, anachronistic on him. This man was a hunter, a warrior. He would be at home stalking a lion in the wild savanna. He was dangerous, lethal. His movements were precise, quiet, and panther-like despite his great mass. And he held a sharp hooked blade in one hand. It was a surgical weapon that promised to gut, to incise, to slice open. Yes, this man was a hunter. And the young Max was his prey. Something primal yelled to life inside the older Max. His existence right now was being threatened by this large man. Never mind that history could not be altered. His mind gibbered and ignored the logic of it. All Max saw was that hooked blade and the oblivious back of his younger head. Max reached into his pocket and cursed. He had not thought to bring the Amphalos bracelet with him. And then Max started. He suddenly knew that this man was familiar to him also in the way Siren had been familiar when they had first met in the Starlin Museum of Antiquities. This man was also part of a jumbled and distant memory, locked deep in the subconscious crypnesia of his mind. Max had met him before. His belly gushed with an unexplained shooting pain. Marvin Sparkle. The name came unbidden into his mind. That was this man's name. Except it was more like Marvin Sparkle. And that was how the man himself pronounced it. And he knew something else. Marvin Sparkle was here to kill him. Without thinking, Max broke into a sprint. Michelle cried out in surprise. But Max knew that he didn't have time to explain or reason it out. Sparkle was almost upon the younger Max, and Madworth was sweeping in on Petunia some distance down the long alley. 
Together, they all formed a strange train of predators and prey, oddly reminding Max of the comic poster that advises, there's always a bigger fish. With one deft movement, Sparkle grabbed the younger Max by the hair and yanked back hard. The boy screamed in pain and surprise. His forward momentum abruptly halted. His eyes lit up with clear recognition and terror when he saw Sparkle's face. He squirmed fiercely, but Sparkle did not let go. He gripped with firm determination. Sparkle raised his hooked blade. He pulled young Max's head back further, preparing the boy's supple neck to receive the death blow. Now, you little beast, this time you die, Sparkle hissed. But now the older Max jumped on Sparkle's back with a howl and grabbed at the knife with a fleshy smack. Sparkle howled in surprise and rage. His giant powerful body twisted towards this unseen attacker. Then his head turned, clean white teeth bared in a snarl, and that was when the young Max squirmed out of his grasp and shot down the alley. Run! Max screamed at his younger self, but the boy needed no encouragement. Sparkle was beyond enraged at this interruption. His other hand now free of the younger Max, he spun and throttled the older by the neck. Max gagged. There was no way he could defend himself against someone so large. The hand was like a massive flesh clamp, wrapping nearly around his whole head. Vainly, Max punched and kicked at Sparkle with very little effect. You fool! Sparkle spat at him with a thick African accent. You have doomed us all! Max strained to talk. Doomed us all? You, you were trying to kill him! That boy! Yes! Sparkle hissed passionately, his eyes glistening with tormented rage. And it would have been better if I had! Let go of me! Max retched. Sparkle quaked. No, I think I will not. Let him go, Michelle howled. Sparkle looked up and noticed her now for the first time. I'm warning you, let him go. Sparkle coughed a small laugh as he appraised her fragile form. Or what? Michelle's eyes narrowed. Sparkle went white and his eyes bulged as though gripped by some inner agony. The hooked blade dropped from his shaking hand. He clutched at his chest as though he were suffering a seizure. Max took the opportunity. He ripped Sparkle's other hand from his throat and backpedaled away so quickly that he slipped and dropped to the ground next to Michelle. Then the crisis seemingly passed. Sparkle breathed easier. Color returned to his face. But he eyed Michelle with a new wariness. Lord, that is what? Michelle whispered dangerously. You gave me a heart attack, girlie. Sparkle marbled. Michelle nodded. We... And I will do it again. So you would be gentlemanly, yes? Sparkle nodded slowly. Max got to his feet. He glanced at Michelle in a new amazement and then said to Sparkle, Why? He started, then convulsed with coughs. When he caught his breath, he continued, Why were you trying to kill that boy? Marv and Sparkle eyed them both closely and then said, Because he is a great evil. You cannot possibly comprehend how great... Oh, I know he appears to be just a boy. I know how this looks. But if he is allowed to live, he will cause great harm. Max swallowed dryly. This wasn't the answer he expected. It sounded like Sparkle was talking about the machine, not his younger self. Are you a Nibarian? Max snapped. Sparkle looked at him like he'd been slapped. You dare! You're working with Madworth, protecting him from that boy, aren't you? At that, Sparkle gave a confused look. I don't know anyone named Madworth, he 
he said evenly. Oh, come on, the old woman. She was just here. You expect me to believe? Max, Michelle whispered. He's telling the truth. Max's gaze snapped at her as if she had broken some unspoken agreement. I am telling the truth, Sparkle insisted, eyeing Michelle warily. And I am only after the boy. If I fail to kill him, much harm will come to the world. How do you know this? Max asked quietly. Sparkle sighed as if this were all useless. <sighs> I just do. What kind of harm? Sparkle shook his head. There is no point in telling you. Not good enough, Max snapped. I don't care what you think the point is or isn't, or even if we'll believe you. Tell us, or Michelle here will give you another dose. Sparkle rolled his eyes. He glanced at Michelle and then sighed and acquiesced. <sighs> there is a device. A very, very bad device. The boy, he will cause it to accomplish its purpose. He will complete it. Thunder cracked in Max's chest. Sparkle was talking about the machine. But he had it all wrong. Max had no intention of allowing the machine to, quote, accomplish its purpose. Surely even his younger self did not. Now, Sparkle said, will you release me? Before the boy gets so far away that I can never track him. Max glanced at Michelle. The tyranny of the page was absolute, as he knew all too well. His younger self was in no danger. History could not be altered. His own existence proved that Sparkle would fail to kill the boy Max. Besides, Madworth, Petunia, and the young Max were long gone by now. Mutely, he nodded. Get out of here, Max said. Sparkle nodded and then sprinted down the alley. After he had gone, Michelle took Max's head in her hands and examined his neck. It was bruised. Black splotches were forming where Sparkle had throttled him. Ah, he will need to wear a collar and cravat after this, she said. Max nodded and looked at the dirt. Why the hell was Marvin Sparkle trying to kill him? Michelle must have caught the thought. She said, If I were you, Max, I would not tell the others about this. You know, about what the man said. Max's head snapped up in surprise. What, you mean keep it a secret from Romani? From Gustav? Why? Michelle nodded her head vigorously. Yes, you must. Otherwise they will think wrong things about you. They will fear you. I'm worried. No, you simply cannot tell them. Max looked at her with conflict in her eyes. I know what I am talking about, Michelle said softly. Why? Max asked her. Do they not trust you for some reason? She looked away in pain. It's not... It's not that simple. Look, just if you tell him the man was just trying to kill you because that you were helping with the machine, then they will not trust you anymore. You and the Berrien... Ferriaro, he will finally have his way. They would listen to him then. Max's throat went dry. The shoes. You think we'd be back to the shoes, don't you? Michelle nodded with tears in her eyes. Or worse. Lord, or worse indeed. Where have you been? Romani snapped the moment they walked in the door. Michelle made an exasperated noise and kept walking towards the stairs. A picture jumped off the wall right in front of Michelle. The glass shattered at her feet and she jumped in surprise. Romani glared. I asked you a question, she said pointedly. Michelle whirled. We went out. For fun. 
not on an errand, not for a mission, but for fun. I see, Romani said, stepping slowly towards her. Fun. Michelle nodded, eyes filled with tears. Yes, fun, laughter. Do you remember it? Michelle looked suddenly as if she regretted saying it, and then decided it was good that she'd said it. She straightened her back and stood tall. Romani was silent. The sound of her shoes on the floor was the only noise filling the air. Sambhava stood in the hallway, watching. Even his normally serene face was now full of fear. Well, did you have a good time? Romani asked, her arms crossed on her chest. Michelle was taken aback by the question. It wasn't what she'd expected. She nodded mutely after a moment. I'm glad to hear it, Romani said, now inches away from Michelle. Do you know why there are rules in this house, Mademoiselle Laveau? Of course, Michelle answered. You could have been killed. Romani suddenly exploded in her face. Every time you walk out that door, I am terrified that you will be killed. All of you. The Nubirians are monsters. You do not know what they are like, or how they... I do. I have seen... Yes, Michelle screamed back, tears flowing freely now. It is true. They might have killed us. But being killed free is better than life in this prison. You let them make us stop living. Romani's eyes went wide. Now it was her turn to be surprised. Her lip quivered and she opened her mouth to speak and then closed it again. I see, she said finally. I know, Michelle continued. Lord, I know I'm supposed to be special and have these abilities, talents that they covet, which threaten them. But I have committed no crime. I have not wronged anyone. Why then should I be locked away to rot? To become old and bitter and alone? Romani's eyes went wide and she stepped back. Michelle had hit a nerve, describing the gypsy situation exactly. Romani quaked with a fever of the soul. Michelle's hand went up to her mouth in horror as she realized what she had just said. The dining room table issued a loud report like a gunshot. They all jumped. The wood had split right down the middle, right straight through a gnarled knot. The table listed in danger of crashing to the ground, but the two ends leaned into each other and held in a flimsy balance. Romani put her hand up towards Michelle as if to ward off some evil thing, and stumbled backwards, tears in her eyes. Oh no, no, madame, I didn't mean... Michelle stammered. Go, Romani said, not looking at her. Get out of my sight. Please, madame, I... Go, Romani howled, roaring like a lion. Her soul had uttered those words, not her mouth. Max felt himself shaking where he stood. Romani retreated to the kitchens. Michelle ran upstairs, tears streaming down her cheeks. Dr. Gustav sternly motioned for Max to follow him. When they entered Gustav's study and he closed the door, Max figured he was in for a tongue-washing of his own. Well, Gustav began, I hope you were able to learn something of interest from all of this. Look, Dr. Gustav, I'm sorry, I just... Gustav waved away this thought. No, the feud between Michelle and Europa is an old one and has nothing to do with you. Michelle feels caged, and Europa fears for her, that is all. And what I meant was, did you learn anything of interest with respect to the machine? Ah, Max said, nodding and quite relieved. Yes. And Max told him of the conversation between Madworth and Sunpike, how the confectioner seemed to be a cryptomnesiac messenger. We could grab Sunpike, Max suggested. Try to crack him, see what he knows. Or follow him, watch him, see who else he talks to. Gustav nodded slowly. You know how I feel about trying to crack a cryptomnesiac. I won't try it again. But we should have this candy maker watched. I'll talk to Europa. 
after she has a moment to herself. Max nodded. He thought for a moment and then said, You know, the only reason I even suggested we try to crack Sunpike is that Madworth said that the final piece of the machine has arrived, that it would be operational in four weeks. I didn't know if that changed anything, you know, about whether you might be willing to try something more drastic. Gustav nodded knowingly. Yes, I know you're anxious. We all are. The machine is undoubtedly a great evil, but I will not see an innocent man killed again. The ends do not justify the means. When we convince ourselves that they do, we become identical to those we fight, and then the darkness wins, even if we win, for then we are all the very darkness we set out to fight in the first place. We haven't defeated it. We've merely become it. Gustav considered his pocket watch for a moment and then said, It is nearly time for our lesson. Should we begin? Max nodded, glad for the distraction. Gustav sat in the circular carpet. Max did the same. We live in a word-made world, Gustav began without preamble. If you lack the words to describe a thing, then, for you, that thing, quite literally, cannot exist. This is why Anki initially limited the vocabulary of primitive humans. It was more than just keeping them from understanding technology, from revolting, although that was certainly there as well. The main thing was to keep humans blind to certain aspects of the universe at large. They were literally blind to them, as in they could not see things that were there all around them, much as people in 1912 cannot see sky chambers. Gustav thought for a second and said, No, it's more than that. Sky chambers are not actually real for them. Max scrunched up his face in confusion. See, I totally don't get that, even though I've employed this principle myself in a limited way. For example, when we first arrived in this time, 1912, I was able to make Ian and I less noticeable, sort of invisible. It's the same thing Romani does with the front door. But I get the feeling you're talking about something else, am I right? Gustav nodded. But you're not far off. It's merely a matter of degree. When you made yourself less noticeable, you did not become physically unreal for these people. They could not walk through you, for example. But sky chambers cannot be noticed, and they are literally not there at all for people in 1912. Max shook his head again. No, that's not right. That centurion, he stole the baby, and he... You're asking how the sky chamber could suddenly be real for the stolen children as well, when they are people from 1912. Max nodded. It is because they were in physical contact with someone for whom sky chambers were real, the very centurions that were kidnapping them. You see, physical contact causes a phenomenon to jump from person to person. The one becomes more obvious to itself in some new way. You discovered this on your own with the, what did you call it? The super pocket. If someone was in physical contact with Sasha, she could remain in the time frame with you in the super pocket. And I myself have walked across an inferno of hot coals with a shaman holding my hand long before I could do such a thing on my own. Lastly, you've discovered that only when you are in physical contact with Ian that he can whoosh. Max nodded again, this time understanding. Okay. But humans in the past were able to see sky chambers, right? We've seen pictographs, hieroglyphs of them. It follows that they must have been able to see them. You can't draw what you can't see. So what happened? Why did humans lose that ability? Gustav smiled. You learn to see. Your consciousness is what sees, not your eyes. Likewise, your consciousness can learn not to see certain things. Under hypnosis, this is a simple thing to accomplish with ordinary people. You tell them they cannot see things, and lo and behold, they cannot. They can even look directly through these things and tell you what is on the other side. But getting back to your point, you are correct. In ancient times, sky chambers could plainly be seen. 
Such vehicles were common sights. But after Enlil left the Earth, the Nibirians left behind realized that they were exposed. What if the black-headed ones turned around and enslaved their gods, stole their power and their knowledge? Thus, the maroon Nibirians greatly desired to hide themselves. They wiped knowledge of their existence from the collective mind of humanity. Wipe themselves? How did they do that? Max asked. We are all the one, Gustav shrugged. Leaves on branches of the great tree. We derived our collective unconscious from those branches nearest to us. All beings do. There is a report of monkeys on one island who learned how to use twigs to scoop ants out of their burrows to make what, to a monkey, is a tasty treat. The other monkeys on that one island learned from one another how to do this, until before long they were all doing it. Now, here is the curious thing. Suddenly, monkeys all over the archipelago of islands all spontaneously began using twigs to twirl ants out of the nests in the very same way. There was absolutely no causal way this information could have been transmitted. There were thousands of islands in this chain, separated by vast stretches of ocean. It was as if, once enough monkeys knew something, they all knew it instinctively. The collective mind of monkey kind had been altered. Max blinked in amazement. Gustav smiled. When the queen ant dies, all of her worker ants instantly become disoriented, even if they are at a great distance. It is the same thing. There is a collective mind that underlies all, and that collective mind can be altered, simply by reprogramming enough of the individual minds. In this way, the Nuberians of long ago began systematically wiping out all humans who could see sky chambers, or anything Nuberian for that matter. Anything that could expose their presence and danger them. The remaining humans, especially the young, were then conditioned not to see. In a single generation, most humans lost this ability to see. They remain blind to this day. Well, most of them anyway. Gustav finished with a sly smile. Max nodded. That's incredible. Not really, Gustav replied. Not when you understand. Incidentally, the same principle is the one that underlies books. Books are devices, slyly crafted to talk to the deepest part of you, to slip like a thief past your conscious mind, and strongly suggest a new description of reality to your subconscious, where your concept of reality is rooted. And once this new description takes hold, it literally becomes real. Sometimes, the suggestion is that you are at a different place, and once you believe that, you are there. Hence, the book transports you to another location, or to another reality altogether, a pocket universe, like the one Ian experienced with the wolves. Johnny Siren said that books had no actual power in and of themselves, Max replied, that the real power was within us. Gustav nodded appreciatively. He said that, did he? Well, he was right. And the arches, Max began. Yes, Gustav finished, smiling that Max was catching on. They too work in the same way. They jar your awareness at its deepest stratum, they alter your consciousness to accept that you are focused on a different part of the prism, that you are in a different time, and then voila, you are. So, with enough discipline, enough will, enough belief, you don't actually need these things. Books, arches, and follows, do you? And that, Gustav said, spreading his arms wide and smiling, is the whole point of our endeavors together.
You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>